Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to True Crime, the podcast that helps you find new, emerging, and undiscovered true crime podcasts. I'm Greg, the host and curator of True Crime. If you like today's episode, make sure to check out the episode description for links to subscribe. Today's episode is from the True Crime Cat Lawyer. True Crime Cat Lawyer is a Pacific Northwest-based true crime podcast hosted by a lawyer and her mustached bowtie kitty focused on creating ethical true crime content. All right, let's get this show started. Begin. The The Oracle Oracle Network. Network. Welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or a serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back for episode 22. As promised, we have moved away from Washington and are bringing you a story from British Columbia, Canada. Today's episode covers the unsolved murder of 24-year-old Lindsay Buziak. Lindsay's murder was committed 13 years ago, and police have yet to arrest anyone for the crime. Lindsay's father, Jeff, works tirelessly to keep Lindsay's face and name in the media. He doesn't want people to forget about Lindsay or the fact that her killer or killers are still out there. Lindsay Buziak was born on November 2, 1983, in Victoria, B.C., to parents Jeff and Evelyn. She has one sister named Sarah. Lindsay was driven and ambitious. She set goals for herself and worked hard to achieve them. She was a free spirit, outgoing, and friendly. At the time of her murder in 2008, Lindsay and her boyfriend, Jason Zillow, lived in central Victoria in a condo owned by Jason's mother, Shirley. Jason and Lindsay had been together for about a year after they met at a real estate course in 2006. There were conflicting reports about the status of Lindsay and Jason's relationship in January 2008. The couple seemed happy together, but her father Jeff said that Jason could be, quote, overprotective, jealous, and overbearing, end quote. Jeff has told multiple reporters that Lindsay was thinking about leaving Jason. There's no way to confirm whether or not that was true. In any case, on January 31st, 2008, Lindsay received a call from a woman asking for a realtor to show her and her husband some properties in the Victoria area. 
the woman gave Lindsay a few specific parameters about what she and her husband were looking for. Three-bedroom, three-bathroom, newly built house with a large master bedroom, a separate area for their housekeeper, and a quote-unquote quick purchase. The budget for the home was $1 million. If Lindsay could make the sale, it would be her highest commission to date. This sale would also be Lindsay's key to moving her real estate business into the higher-end market. One thing that stuck out about the call to Lindsay was that it came directly to her personal cell phone, not her office or work cell phone. When Lindsay asked how the woman got her information, the woman told her that she was referred by one of Lindsay's clients. Lindsay told both Jason and her dad about the phone call. She referred to the callers as the quote-unquote Mexicans because the woman had some kind of accent. Quote, a bit Spanish, but not really, end quote. Lindsay tried to verify the referral with her client, but the client was out of town. This could be a risky opportunity, but Lindsay was ready to take the next step in her career, and she couldn't pass this up. Lindsay found a house for the couple in Saanich, which is an upscale suburb of Victoria. The house was on DeSousa Place, a small cul-de-sac with just four houses. The DeSousa house was at the outer end of the cul-de-sac, at the intersection of DeSousa Place and Torquay Drive. The house had been on the market for almost a year. It was brand new and vacant. It had three bedrooms and three bathrooms and an asking price of $965,000. Lindsay set up a showing for the couple on February 2nd at 5.30 p.m. To ease any feelings of uneasiness Lindsay had, Jason told her he would meet her at the D'Souza house. He had some paperwork for her to sign and said he'd stick around after, just for backup. So on February 2nd, Jason and his friend Cohen met up to play hockey, but first they made a pit stop at a body shop. After Jason and Cohen left the body shop, they headed over to the D'Souza house for the showing. Jason sent Lindsay a text telling her that he would be at the house in 10 to 15 minutes. Lindsay replied, telling Jason that the couple was there and she was starting the showing. Jason sent another text at 5.38 p.m. He told Lindsay he was a few minutes away. Lindsay never read that text. Jason and Cohen arrived at the property at 5.45 p.m. At first, Jason parked his car in the driveway, but he eventually moved the car to Torquay Drive, around the corner from the property. But while Jason was in the driveway, he saw a man and a woman open the front door, then go back inside the house. Kind of odd, but nothing that immediately aroused Jason's suspicions. So he and Cohen sat and waited in the car. After about 20 minutes, Jason started to get worried. Jason and Cohen walked up to the front door and tried to open it, but found that it was locked. That's when Jason made his first call to 911 at 6.05 p.m. Cohen ran around to the back of the house where he found the back door open. Again, very odd. Cohen entered the house through the back door to unlock the front door for Jason. Jason immediately ran upstairs to the master bedroom where he found Lindsay's body in a pool of blood on the floor. It was clear she was deceased, having been stabbed over 40 times. 
Jason made his second call to 911 at 6.11 p.m. Just six minutes had passed since his first call. When police arrived, they secured the home to make sure no one else was there. Jason and Cohen were questioned by police, but they were able to confirm the men's alibis after reviewing surveillance footage from the body shop. Jason and Cohen were released. Jason also took a polygraph test and passed, at least according to the police. There were no signs of sexual assault, and all of Lindsay's belongings were left at the crime scene, ruling out robbery and sexual assault as potential motives for Lindsay's murder. Lindsay had multiple stab wounds to her head and chest. Investigators' theory was that Lindsay was stabbed when she turned around to show the couple the ensuite in the master bedroom. In other words, Lindsay was attacked from behind. She never saw it coming, so she didn't have any defensive wounds. From the beginning of their investigation, police focused on the motive. Why would anyone want to kill Lindsay? The attack was quick. Very little evidence was left behind, which led police to believe that Lindsay's murder was planned and orchestrated with great precision. Here's the timeline of events police were able to create. Lindsay arrived at the D'Souza house just before 5.30 p.m., parking her car in the driveway. Lindsay entered the D'Souza house at 5.29 p.m. Police were able to pinpoint the exact time of entry because the lockbox Lindsay used to enter the house was connected to a computer system, which time-coded when she accessed the lockbox. Police believe Lindsay was stabbed between 5.38 and 5.41, meaning that the whole interaction with the couple, including the murder, took less than 15 minutes. Investigators believe Jason likely witnessed the killers attempting to leave the house when he arrived at 5.45, but he wasn't able to provide a description of the man or woman to investigators. When investigators canvassed the area, they found a few witnesses who said they saw a man and a woman walking toward the house earlier in the evening. The couple exchanged brief greetings with Lindsay before the three went into the house. The woman was described as a blonde with a, quote, colorful designer dress, end quote, with a distinctive red, white, and black pattern. The man was described as Caucasian, around six feet tall, with a medium build and dark hair, possibly in his late 30s or early 40s. Investigators noticed an outgoing call from Lindsay's Blackberry around the time of her attack. The call was placed to an acquaintance of Lindsay's that she hadn't spoken to in months. The message was a muffled sound, which led investigators to conclude it was a pocket dial accidentally placed at the time of Lindsay's murder. Lindsay wrote down the phone number belonging to the couple in her day planner, so police hoped they would be able to trace the phone back to its owner. Unfortunately, the number was traced back to a burner phone that was purchased three months prior to Lindsay's murder. The phone was paid for in cash and registered to a Paulo Rodriguez, which police believed was a fake name. The cell phone was only used to contact Lindsay after being activated in late January 2008 in Vancouver, BC. There were at least six calls made to Lindsay from the phone prior to her murder, but after her death, the phone was never used again. Police spoke with Lindsay's father, Jeff, as part of their investigation. 
He told police that Lindsay had visited him in Calgary, Alberta on December 14, 2007. Lindsay told her father she, quote, saw something bad, end quote, but didn't provide any specifics or any further explanation. When police looked into this lead, they found out Lindsay was in contact with an old friend who was a relative of Erickson Lopez Delicazar. Now, you might be asking, who the heck is he? Delicazar was involved in the drug trade. In fact, just a few days before Lindsay's murder, he was charged in the, quote, largest cocaine trafficking case in Alberta, end quote. Could there be a connection between Delicazar's drug case and Lindsay's murder? Police would never answer that question definitively, at least not publicly. Detectives also looked into one of Lindsay's ex-boyfriends, Matt McDuff. When the two were dating, their phones had been tapped due to McDuff's association with Jasmohan Singh Baines. Baines was involved in the trafficking and sale of illegal narcotics in BC and Alberta. But after looking into this potential lead, there was nothing to suggest that Lindsay was involved in or knew anything about the drugs or Baines's drug operations. So the investigation fizzled out quickly. In 2010, investigators held a press conference. But it wasn't to give any updates on Lindsay's case or give details on an arrest. Instead, investigators told the public that the Zillow family, aka Jason's family, wasn't involved in Lindsay's murder. Lindsay's father put up a $500,000 reward and set up a website for tips on Lindsay's case. He has been critical of the investigators' efforts into his daughter's case for years. In 2017, an unknown user posted a message on Jeff's website. At the time, only the following portions of the message were made public. Quote, I killed Lindsay and stupid cops will never prove it. End quote. And, quote, cut the phony investigation. It's done. Go home, losers. Forget about her. The street always rules. Bitches die every day. End quote. Lindsay's name was misspelled. The author used an E instead of an A. The only other information police re released about the posting was that they didn't feel it was credible, as a tip, as a confession, or as anything else. And 2017 was the last big update on the case. That is, until October 2020. Capital Daily gained access to a ton of documents on Lindsay's case. There were so many details that the public didn't know, and a lot of those details reframed what we thought we knew about Lindsay's murder. So let's start at the beginning. Lindsay had a laptop that Jason voluntarily provided to police back in 2008. There were missing chat messages, but police couldn't determine when those messages had been deleted, so they could have been deleted well before Lindsay's murder. Investigators uncovered something, or should I say a lack of something, that was far more interesting. From January 24, 2008 to February 3, 2008, there were no messages from any of Lindsay's 700 Facebook friends. Her online activity just mysteriously dropped off in the days leading up to her murder. Not a smoking gun by any means, but it was definitely 
very odd to investigators. They reviewed Lindsay's entire list of Facebook friends. The Capital Daily article cited police reports that stated, quote, violent criminals and people involved in illegal distribution of drugs, end quote, were amongst Lindsay's friends. We also found out that there were actually 10 calls between the burner phone and Lindsay's phone in the weeks leading up to her murder. There was no evidence that the couple ever provided their name to Lindsay or that she wrote down their names anywhere. The Capital Daily discovered more information about Lindsay's email activity as well. After Lindsay took the initial call from the mystery couple, she began compiling a list of properties to show them. She planned to show the couple a few listings. All were new and vacant as requested by the couple. On February 1st, 2008, Lindsay emailed property listings to the couple. She also provided the address of the D'Souza house. Police believe that once the couple received the address, they looked up the property on MapQuest, this was pre-Google Maps, so that they could familiarize themselves with the area and plan escape routes from both the D'Souza house and the neighborhood. Another detail not previously provided was that Shirley Zillow, Jason's mom, came to Lindsay and Jason's condo on February 1st around 7.15 p.m. Shirley worked at the same real estate office as Lindsay, but it's still unknown why Shirley was at the condo that night. The records indicate that Shirley overheard a phone call between Lindsay and an unknown individual. The details she provided were this. Lindsay planned to meet the couple at 5.30 on February 2nd because apparently the couple was flying in from Vancouver on the 2nd. Vancouver is about three hours away from Victoria. This detail doesn't really add much to the overall picture, but it is curious to note that Shirley saw the couple the night before Lindsay was murdered. These documents provided more information about Lindsay's state of mind at the time of the murder as well. Apparently, she was stressed about money, and she hoped that that sale would be a large commission for her. But there were also reports that she still felt conflicted about the showing. Lindsay thought she would have to miss one of her friend's bachelorette party because apparently the couple wanted to see other houses on the evening of the 2nd and into Sunday. This information is super interesting because this is the first time we've heard that the couple had intentions of seeing other properties, or at least making Lindsay think they had the intention of seeing other properties. So now that we know that there was a list, why did they choose the D'Souza house? Did this house have the best escape route out of the options Lindsay provided to them? While I don't have the exact addresses of the other properties that Lindsay planned to show the couple, When you look at the D'Souza house, there were a lot of places to park a car along side streets at the back of the property. I say that because we know there wasn't a car in the driveway other than Lindsay's at the time of the showing. And even though Jason may have said that there weren't any cars on the side street, he wouldn't know which houses belonged on Torquay Drive and which didn't because he didn't live in the neighborhood. It's also possible that they had a getaway car that was parked on a completely different street. They could have made their exit on foot to whatever getaway car they had waiting while Jason and Cohen were coming up to the front door. But all of that is purely speculation on my part. 
So we know that Lindsay and Jason had a late lunch together on the afternoon of February 2nd. But records also indicate that Lindsay stopped by her Remax office sometime between 3 or 4, according to the receptionist. I tend to think it was closer to 3 or 3.30, just because we later find out that Jason went to the auto body shop around 4.30. But in any case, the receptionist at the Remax office said that Lindsay was, quote, freaked out and feeling weird, end quote, about the showing. Again, according to the receptionist, Lindsay provided the contact number to her and another coworker to try and get more information on the potential clients, but they weren't able to find out anything. When Lindsay's clients were interviewed after her murder, they all denied providing a referral for the mystery couple. Jason went to the auto body shop around 4.30 after he had lunch with Lindsay because the owners had hired Lindsay to sell one of their properties. It appears Jason may have had an offer to present to the owners. So Jason and Cohen left the auto body shop at 5.30 p.m. They tried to use their GPS to find the D'Souza house, but they had to call Lindsay to get directions. Before ending the call, Lindsay said, quote, Oh, I've got to go. They're here. End quote. Those would be the last words she would say to those she knew and loved. When Jason got to the house, he texted Lindsay, as we previously knew, but he also tried calling Lindsay's phone. It's not clear to me if these calls went unanswered or if they went straight to voicemail. At around 6 p.m., Jason and Cohen got out of Jason's car and went up to the front door. Jason said he rang the doorbell about 10 times, but no one answered. And this is where we get more information about his actions on the day of Lindsay's murder. Jason tried calling the number of the listing agent, but the only number on the for sale sign was their office number. So Jason called his mother, Shirley, to see if she had a direct dial number for the listing agent. He also paged the agent to ask for the garage passcode, but the records didn't indicate whether a response was ever received. All of these calls and pages happened before Jason called 911 at 6.05 p.m. Capital Daily was able to find out more information about that 911 call, too. Jason told the operator he and Lindsay were both realtors and she was meeting an out-of-town client. He also told the operator that Lindsay was kind of scared, so he had come along to the showing for protection. While he was still on the phone with 911, he said he saw a man through the glass panels in the door, but he couldn't open the front door because it was locked. Lindsay's car was still in the driveway, and he saw her shoes through the front window, so Jason knew Lindsay still had to be in the house. When Jason and Cohen walked to the side of the house, to what they described as a large enclosed patio, they saw the back door was open. According to the newly obtained documents, both men began to panic. Jason boosted Cohen over the fence and then ran back to the front door. Jason said as soon as he entered the house, both he and Cohen did a quote-unquote sweep of the house. Cohen took the downstairs and Jason ran upstairs. That's when Jason placed the second call to 911. Evidently, he had hung up the first call when they were able to gain access into the house through the back door. Jason told the 911 operator he found bloody footprints and then found Lindsay lying in a pool of blood. 
Jason said he checked for a pulse and tried to perform CPR. This detail is also interesting to me because the original report was that it was quote-unquote obvious from the scene that Lindsay was deceased. So why is Jason checking for a pulse and performing CPR if Lindsay was obviously dead? Did he actually do these things or did he just say he did to make himself look like the concerned boyfriend? I digress. When police arrived on scene, they canvassed the home and began a search of the area with a canine unit. There was no weapon found in the home, which, again, isn't surprising because we know the crime scene was immaculate and police only found Lindsay's blood. They had no usable fingerprints or DNA. More information was released about the burner phones, too. Apparently, there were actually two crime phones. The second phone was used to check the voicemail of the first phone. One of the burner phones, despite being registered under a fake name, was actually registered to a legitimate business address in Vancouver. But unfortunately, this lead didn't go anywhere because police think the address was just chosen at random. Cell phone pings from the burner phone showed it traveled on a ferry from Vancouver on the day before the murder. The couple likely arrived early to finalize their preparations for Lindsay's murder. Again, purely speculation. It's clear Lindsay was targeted, but why? Police still appear to be operating under the professional hit theory, although they have also said that the murder was, quote, brutal but too amateurish, end quote. I'm not really sure how to reconcile those two thoughts because they don't really seem to make a lot of sense when they're put together. Police believe the couple likely had a getaway car parked on or near Torquay Drive at the back of the D'Souza house. Police have stated that Lindsay's murder was very personal and planned by someone very close to her. According to the newly released records, this could be someone who had access to quote-unquote inside information from the Remax office where Lindsay worked. Jason's family has been cleared, according to police, which rules out Jason and his mother Shirley. Investigators have explicitly stated that forensic evidence, surveillance, Jason's polygraph, the timeline, and witness statements all support Jason's quote-unquote version of events, and he's been cleared as a suspect in Lindsay's murder. According to the Capital Daily article, police know the real name of the person who purchased the burner phones. But it's not clear if that's actually true, and police obviously haven't shared that information if it is true. As I mentioned earlier, Lindsay's father, Jeff, has expressed his lack of confidence in Saanich police and their investigatory efforts. Every year, he hosts a walk for justice to remind everyone that he hasn't forgotten about Lindsay or her case. He knows that someone out there has the answers to who killed Lindsay and why. Jeff has told reporters that he has a short list of suspects, but he hasn't elaborated or provided any names. In early 2021, it was revealed that the FBI had joined a task force, which also included the RCMP, to assist in the investigation. A new team of investigators were, quote, utilizing all available resources to take a fresh look, end quote, at Lindsay's murder case. This included reviewing and retesting all of the evidence, including what investigators referred to as, quote unquote, digital evidence. 
also plan to re-interview all possible suspects. If you have any information on the murder of Lindsay Buziak, please contact Saanich Police at 250-475-4321 or contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. If you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. You can get monthly mini and bonus episodes, as well as early access to our main episodes. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks again for listening to True Crime by Indie Drop-In Network. If you would like to nominate a true crime podcast to be featured, just send me a tweet at Indie Drop-In. I'd also love to hear if one of our featured podcasts is now your favorite show. Indie Drop-In survives off ad revenue and listener donations. If you would like to contribute, please consider buying me a coffee. You can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Indie Drop-In. If you look at the very bottom of the episode description, I put a link in there to make it really easy. Indie Drop-In has many other shows that you also might like. Just go to IndieDropIn.com. All right, see you next week.